Our brand new podcast is here. In Under the Hood, we lift the lid on the banking infrastructure that's shaking up the financial services industry. In partnership with Synapse, we'll explore a different area of banking tech every Thursday and talk to experts around the world. Head to your favorite podcast app and follow Under the Hood to catch the latest episode. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you the dark side of BAS. One third of European fintechs have faced regulatory intervention because of their partner bank. Nigeria's Kuda Bank raises $25 million in Series A funding. And the merger we never thought we'd see, Monty Python meets NFTs. All of this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 514 of Fintech Insider. I'm Adam Davis, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Sarah Kajanski. Sarah, like normally you're introducing me. What's going on? (laughs) Well, you know, we did this last week. We did this double out last week, and and I, you know, I was was having to run the show, so I thought I'd let you have a go this week. Very kind of you. Uh, I must just say, I will point out, Sarah, congratulations this week. You've been named in the Women in Fintech Power List by Innovate Finance, which came out yesterday. I know it's not even in the show notes, and I know you like despise me for saying it, but I'm going to call it out anyway. So congratulations. Thank you very much. It was um, a big surprise, and I um, listed among some amazing women, uh, many of whom I know and many of whom I don't. So it was it's really lovely, um, and I am very pleased. Good stuff. Uh, and we are not alone. Uh, we are joined, albeit remotely, by some uh, awesome guests. Uh, making a welcome return, we have Babs Ogunday, who's the founder and CEO of Kudabam. Uh, Babs, welcome back. Yep. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be back. Uh, good to uh, good to see you uh, back here again with another piece of amazing news, which we'll talk about uh, very soon in the show. And then making his fintech insider debut, we have Charles McManus, who's the CEO of ClearBank. Charles, how are you doing? Very good, thanks, and uh, delighted to be here. I, I can't understand how it's taken me so long. To, uh, this is the first appearance. So. I, I was going to say the same thing. It strikes me as odd that this is your first uh, this is your <laughs> first appearance on the show. But hey, you know, delighted that- to be here. This is what happens. Awesome. And it's, uh, it's really great to have you. Um, let's kick off the show. And the first story we've got is, uh, Charles, we'll, we'll come to you in a second, but I'll just introduce this one. Um, we're calling it The Dark Side of Bass, which sounds like a horror film, but one third of European fintechs have faced regulatory intervention because of their partner banks. Um, and this is uh, based on an independent survey of 100 fintechs across the Netherlands, Lithuania, Sweden, Switzerland, and the UK. Uh, and it was commissioned, the report by ClearBank, and it reveals a multitude of uh, challenges that fintechs experience at the hands of their agency banks' shortcomings. So there's some stats for you here, and there's loads of other stats that we've got, which we'll cover in a sec. But 49% of fintechs don't believe that their agency bank has helped their business. Uh, 12% believe that their bank has actually uh, inhibited their uh, business and their uh, opportunity for growth. 48% of respondents stated they don't believe they're getting bass from their bank. It's an interesting one. Uh, 33% of fintech surveyed stated that they have faced intervention from the regulator due to a fault of their agency banking partner. I think if we, there's a fair few examples that have uh, occurred over the last 12 months where that's uh, made mainstream news. I'm thinking uh, obviously Wirecard, but there's others as well. Uh, one in 20 saw an outage because of their agency bank. Um, and the report summarizes that fintechs are being failed by the agency banks when they need the most help. Charles, let's direct this one straight to you. It's relatively damning. Um, was this relatively expected, though, just given where we are in sort of the BAS movement and, I guess, quote unquote, nouveau technology that, that, that this is? I was really disappointed, actually, although we commissioned it. Uh, this is last November. Uh, I didn't think the stats would be great but I think that they're, they're worse than I was certainly expecting. The however to that, uh, and obviously there are a lot of stats in here, but one that stuck out to me was that 71% of the larger fintechs are still using traditional high street banks uh, for their agency bank services. And so this is all about tech, as we know, and just that stat of using the big four tech will actually give you a lot of the answers in relation to that. Um, so, for example, banks wanting to sell them essentially uh, credit products uh, and sell them products as compared to what fintechs really need 
is actually banking services, payment services, uh, and in particular account services to allow them to service their customers really well. That's not something the high street banks have traditionally been very good at with their tech. And when you get through a number of the stats in relation to provision of APIs and opening customer accounts, for example, I thought it was really shocking. Uh, it's going back to the dark ages of opening a current account for, for a fintech of taking three days. You know, why isn't it real time? Uh, and we all know the answer to that in relation to tax tax. Um, so there was a lot of, of damning stats there. There was some, uh, I was surprised that perhaps only 50% uh, or 51% of the fintechs that were actually surveyed saw that their banking relationship was mission critical to them. Uh, and 50% of that essentially um, didn't think that their, their banks were doing a very good job. We would say certainly uh, of the fintechs that were surveyed here, half of them were technology and half of them were providing services to SMEs and consumers that actually the banking relationship to empower them and unlock their potential to service their customers well is critical They have a decent bank behind them. Yeah, I was I was actually going to say, uh, did you find within the answers that there is that that shift that uh, you know ultimately these are technology providers and they you know they are you know software providers uh, at scale, but is it a case that the technology, albeit that can improve, but at the moment is just about okay, but actually it's the servicing side that's letting these organisations down, or have you, do you think it's more balanced between the two? I think it's balanced between the two, actually, and that there are the penetration of the true cloud native providers is increasing, but it's still got a long way to go. You know, there are some fantastic providers out there now, particularly for core banking services, for example, like Mambu that we all know, or Terminos or whatever it is, or a 10X. There's some really good uh, products out there as core banking engines that empower in, in terms of cloud. Uh, they are penetrating, but there's still an awful lot or fintechs and regulated sort of FIs that are on old tech stacks. Um, and so if you then look at the combination of one of those core banking engines together with uh, ClearBank's platform, for example, it's making a tremendous difference. But it also shows us the opportunity we've still got to actually go to penetrate that market. Uh, with 71%, as I say, of larger fintechs still being serviced by high street banks, um, where they haven't got automatic reconciliations. They've still got all the friction in relation to the back end. They haven't got API service. They haven't got real time. They haven't got automatic reconciliations. Um, in this age, you know, for, to power our, our UK fintechs as well as European, it's, it's, it's really important that they're leveraging those services. And it's clearly a large amount of them are not yet and so um, this is not a sales pitch for ClearBank. It's, uh, <laughs> it's an industry survey in that there are a lot of good providers of banking as a service out there. Um, fintechs have got to take advantage. Uh, and the last part I'd say to that, and as we have with all financial services, um, that actually the switching, um, the percentages in relation to switching, if you look at it, that 44% of fintechs are staying with their agency bank because switching looks too painful. Um, but despite that, uh, another stat, 14% are looking to, to switch in the next 12 months. Um, and certainly from seeing both sides in my own career, uh, regardless of the BAS provider, making that switch is such an empowering tool in relation to, to giving them rocket fuel to go farther, uh, grow faster and actually leverage those services that are out there. Yeah, because it is one of the, um, I suppose it's the old adages, but one of the things that is thrown at the sort of the quote-unquote le legacy providers, that multi-year vendor contracts stunts growth. And actually, if you, you know, you enter into a deal with one of the uh, the, the, the bigger boys, the, the more established players, you, you join their roadmap and, you know, whatever they roll out, you'll get, but you'll get it when they want to roll it out rather than when uh, you want it rolled out, if that makes sense, from a product perspective. So it is, it is a shame to see that, you know, that, that stat that 44% of fintechs, uh, you know, believe that switching looks painful because that's almost the justification for having, you know, this type of technology and these types of stacks built. Um, and that's a really, I think that's a really interesting one to, di to dig deeper into. Um, but Babs, I just wondered to get your thoughts on this, having just built a bank yourself. Um, what, what's your view on this and, and the tech stacks, obviously, that you guys are using, but also just your view on uh, how this may manifest itself through, um, through the years? 
Yeah, so for us, we actually used to um, work with um, a local player in Nigeria um, to sort of provide the core banking and banking reels for us. And that experience is what ultimately led us to build our own core banking. Um, we didn't want to, but it just wasn't efficient enough to the level that we needed to be at um, to sort of start making a dent in the um sort of general banking space. So, I mean, I can understand the stats because we've experienced, you know, similar <laughs> similar things. Um, and I think sort of the difference is we kind of wanted to build our own um, tech stack anyway um, because our model was based on the fact that we were actually a bank. So we had a, a banking license. So we, we kind of had that in mind, but sort of it, it, it needed to be accelerated just because of the experience that we, we had. And I, yeah, we, we went through all the sort of regulatory hiccups as well. Um, so we were affected when, you know, our partner wasn't quite compliant. So ultimately, you know, it, it just made it, you know, it's part of why we kind of, you know, need more funding or needed more funding at the time. Just, we just felt we had to just go it alone, um, which I think it's a shame for sort of the Basque community because ultimately, you know, it's not necessarily what we wanted to do. Um, but, you know, sometimes you, you kind of left with no, no choice. And it's interesting because we're, this is obviously in Nigeria, um, but we are looking to be in the UK at some point. So, <laughs> you know, and, and we're currently debating if what we have is going to be suitable enough for sort of the financial infrastructure um, in the UK or, you know, if it's better to sort of partner to start with. And, you know, so it is a bit of a headache and it's not sort of the stats are not what we want to see, you know, when we're, <laughs> we're about to make that move. Um no, of course, yeah. and uh, you, you you did just reference something which is interesting. Um, but there's um, the, the concept of the license and just how important that is. I think the you know what what isn't sort of uh, necessarily in this report, probably because it wasn't covered. But it's it's more around. Can you only necessarily achieve success with a third party provider if you um, if you ultimately grow to a certain point, get your license, and then build your own stack or build the majority of the stack yourself. It's been a well-trodden path, I guess, from fintechs in the UK, you know, but it is a well-trodden path from you know fintechs you started maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago. They've made that transition sort of three years on. And and how, uh, I mean, f from what you've seen, do you think the success is get a license, move off, or is it actually that these relationships can continue? Um well, I mean, I think ultimately you want to have as much control as possible. That's kind of like the holy grail. But, you know, it's expensive and it requires a lot of resource. So it does make sense to partner with somebody that is already doing it. You know, you can test the market. You can, you know, you can know if it's actually worth the while um, making all those um, investments, you know, both in terms of sort of human resource and, and, and financial and, and, and whatnot. Um, so I guess it, it makes sense for, for that to be sort of the, the typical path to building a bank. Um, but I mean, for me personally, you know, I'm, I'm quite lazy, so I would rather, you know, someone else does all the work, um, but it, it, it just has to work, you know, um, but but yeah, so that's 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 my view. Yeah, Ch Charles, I was just going to ask you one, one more question on this because one of the things that didn't come up in, uh, I guess, the the series of requests that fintechs want or expect from their agency banks uh, was actually resilience or, or increased resilience, which I was quite surprised with because I was expecting that to come up. Um, the, the number one request, if you like, the fintechs have is for a single API access, uh, which is quite interesting, uh, followed by transparency about use of funds held. That's 42%. Single API access was referenced 49% at the time. Uh, then better use of open banking infrastructure. Um, and then the agency bank not to compete with the fintech that they're serving, um, which, uh, yeah, you would, I mean, I guess that is in the back of the mind with many, you know, if, if you're moving across the fintech ecosystem, that's, that is a distinct possibility. J just on the single API access, how, how difficult is that to achieve uh, from a technical perspective, in, in, in your opinion? I, I think it's quite unique uh, because a number of the APIs, if you go to some of the big four 
they've got an API or one that does faster payments. Uh, they may have another API that essentially would do backs or indeed chaps uh, uh, if they had it. Um, and so for the big four, um, they're, they're on their way, but actually it's not there. So for example, and I, I've got to use ClearBank here, haven't I? We built our API. We got 32 endpoints on, on the, the API and it allows you to access all the payment schemes uh, at will in relation to the way we connected it. So in comparison to some of the competition, um, it's light years ahead in relation to the, the tech aspect. So it doesn't surprise me in relation to if, if 71% of the largest are using the big four, then they're going to have API issues basically in, in relation to it's still not leading edge in relation to tech. But there are providers out there that clearly do. Um, and we're updating those all of the time in terms of new services. So it, the, the tech is definitely there. Um, uh, very disappointing that, that actually that is holding back a number of fintechs that, that are very tech-minded uh, and therefore they should be looking to switch in relation to actually upgrade and actually get the advantage of that. So um, coming back to Babs's point, we've been through this a lot with a lot of UK fintechs and our clients in relation to, to as they grow, as you say, Adam, from say an EMI right through then to, to actually um, upgrading to a full banking license and then and then moving all the way through. Um, and should they then also become a member of the payment schemes, et cetera. Um, a number uh, of household names in relation to new digital banks, some of their CEOs actually saying, no, 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 we, we have got a, a, a competitive advantage in relation to our lending app, for example. Um, why would I actually want to spend all that money and go through uh, and, and get payments at the back end when I can JV with someone like ClearBank and, and their state of the art? What does it give me in competitive advantage? And therefore, for turning a fixed cost and a two years or a one year into a variable cost in three months, it's a no-brainer. Hmm. But it does depend. Babs talked about control. And if it's if it's paramount to you that you must have that control, then it comes with a price. If it's not key to you in relation to your your proposition, then um, partnering and speed and JVing is certainly what we've seen in terms of, of the development of the market and why we've been so successful. Um, because people want to develop their front ends and not worry about the back end. Yeah. Um, Sarah, do you want the uh, last word on this one? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I think from what I've seen, the, the big point here is resources, right? When you're starting out, what are you going to focus on? And that's what both the, the guests today have mentioned. You know, wh where do you focus your attention? Where do you focus your money? You've only got so much. You want to get something out there, something different and something working. What's the quickest way to do that? I think one thing that's worth pointing out probably um, is everybody has a different definition of Baz, right? So until we're quite sure what Baz is, I'm not quite sure we can be sure whether we're getting what we expect or not. Does that make sense? I mean, there are some some specifics here. So if we're talking about real-time um, settlement and if you're talking about API access, then yes. But but I think when you're talking about badge, you have to be quite careful. And I think that we need to be better at defining it before we start asking these questions because it, otherwise it's very hard to set expectations. You don't know you don't know what you're meeting. <laughs> it's 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 kind of a, a chicken and egg. Yeah. Sarah, if I could, if I could respond to that, I, I so agree, um, and it's used so freely in the marketplace and become more so. It's you know, if, if you got blockchain in your name, your share price is ten percent higher. Baz is moving into that category. If I can be that cynical, um, uh, to give you our definition in relation to it, if I may, uh, without being too boring in, in, in relation to that, um, what we, uh, I'm going to read this, if I may. There's been a rise in licensed banks offering digital banking services embedded in the products and services of fintechs via APIs. So essentially, it's those fintechs that don't want to be a bank, but want to offer banking services and then leverage a bank through an API to provide bank account services empowered by someone else. That's the definition that we know as banking as a service. Um, but there's lots of variations on that in terms of technand uh, and technology, but they're not actually providing banking. Um, through that API, you've got to be able to move cash and provide current accounts and actually allow payment finality. 
So but anyway, that's our uh, for our two pennyworth, Sarah. That's what I believe the true banking as a service is. Sadly, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon and 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 do a really <laughs> shameless plug and say if you want to learn more about Bass, <laughs> um, an undefined Bass, you can define it however you like. Uh, ch- check out uh, our documentary series, which is decoded banking as a service, over on the 11FS YouTube uh, channel. That's hosted by uh, our very own Simon Taylor. Um, Cool. We're going to move it on. I have the feeling that topic might come back uh, in many guises across uh, the next four or five stories. So we'll refer back to it when it comes up. Um, But the next story is that uh, and the Nigerian challenger, uh, Kuda Bank, has raised $25 million in Series A funding. Uh, so the funding round was led by uh, Valar Ventures, uh, which is the Peter Thiel-backed VC, uh, in their first African uh, investment. Uh, founded in 2019, Kuda Bank calls itself the Bank of the Free. It offers a no-fee virtual account and accompanying uh, debit card, uh, and Kuda built its core banking system in-house, as uh, Babs has just mentioned. Customers can set up automatic savings pots and accrue up to 15% yearly interest uh, and CUDA makes its money from broker fees when a user tops up their phone or pays their bills through the app. Uh, Babs, I'm literally doing a marketing spiel for you, but I'll keep going, uh, as well as losing uh, collective deposits to make investments <laughs> and, and issue credit. Um, you are uh, The bank is insured by the Nigerian Deposit Insurance Corporation, a license by the Central Bank of Nigeria. Babs, after all of that, uh, do you want to tell us uh, a little bit about this raise and obviously what the money is going to be used for? Yeah, um, yeah, you did a very good job in, in marketing CUDA. So thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we, we raised, uh, seed round, uh, sort of Q4, uh, 2020. And the growth that we, we witnessed was pretty exponential. And, you know, we had been speaking with, um, with the guys at Valar for a while. You know, they can sort of, they came in too late to get into the seed round. Um, and it just kind of made sense to consolidate and accelerate our plans for expansion and, and really take charge of customer acquisition uh, locally as well in Nigeria. So, and again, when you have growth, you you need to put certain things in place. Um, there's a running joke um, in CUDA that it was basically built by a bunch of kids um, so we're, we're kind of like the rebel bank running around thinking we can do, you know, whatever we want, but, you know, with scale comes more responsibilities. So, you know, we've set up a really strong, um, compliance department now, you know, the finance team has been bolstered. Um, we, we've sort of gotten, gotten some really top quality experience, uh, people, to come in and, and, and help us um, sort of maintain and, and make sure we don't, you know, run foul of of, of our of our regulatory responsibilities. Um, and it provides the funding is providing us with an opportunity to um, again speed up the the customer acquisition. We've noticed sort of we've been quite fortunate because of you know lockdowns and COVID and whatnot and. You know, customers have really taken up sort of adoption of, of, of our products. And we just want to really push on with that. And as I said earlier on, there's an, also an opportunity for us to sort of start looking outside of Nigeria, um, outside of Africa to kind of target the, the Africans in diaspora. And that's really the sort of the main reason we want to be in the UK. Um, it has a huge, um, even if it's just to start with Nigerians, I think Nigerians have the second largest remittance market um, in the UK. So it just provides us with that opportunity to sort of win or at least capture that market. And that's it. You know, it's going well. It's a lot of work, but, you know, we're really excited. We're excited to have Valar on board. You know, they're really experienced. Uh, they've done, you know, they have an amazing portfolio Um and, and it's just strong validation for us, um, you know, all the way in Africa to have such um, reputable and, and experienced investors um, like interested in us. 
Yeah, it speaks massively to your growth, which has just been phenomenal. I mean, I think if you look at, um, again, you know, we, we normally benchmark sort of the, the real successful uh, Neo challenges with Monzo. But if you look at their sort of maturity at the point where they were starting to think about quite a lot of, um, I suppose, the scaled processes that you're putting in place now, they might have only, you know, they might have been four or so more years into it, whereas you guys only started in 2019. D- d- does it feel like, you know, with 650,000 users uh, in, in two years is just, is, is almost mind blowing. D- does it feel like it's actually going too quick or, or is, or, or is, is, is there no such thing as, uh, as, as too quick, I guess, when it comes to uh, customer acquisition? Yeah. Um, we've actually crossed 700,000 now. Um, so oh, wow. yeah, it is, it's going very <laughs> quick. Um, I don't think there's such a thing as too quick. Um, I just think you have to sort of be be very ready um, to accommodate um, the growth. Um, and again, it's it's partly why um, we decided to pull the trigger and, and do the Series A now, because um, I mean, it's, I think it was three or four months between the seed and the Series A, which is quite mm. short. Um, but we realized, you know, we could see the growth. Um, so we don't, we realized we have to act quickly um, so that we can accommodate that growth uh, so, so long as you, you know, what's coming, um, and you sort of prepare yourself. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to grow even faster than this if it's possible. Um, you know, so. Uh, um, j- j- just a quick, um, before we get, uh, sort of turn the attention to sort of, um, the growth in Africa and some of the recent investments, uh, in, into the continent. Um, I would just like to say, uh, or ask you in terms of the, the actual customer pain point that you feel you're servicing. So we know, um, in Africa, credit card ownership is, is quite low payments, especially sort of, uh, across the countries can be quite difficult to facilitate. W- what is it, um, I suppose about your particular service, which is, which has got customers flocking to, to what you do and i guess what, what do you make easier and how have how have customers been sort of central to that journey yeah so i think it's a combination of things um typically uh traditional banking has really sort of been set up for a niche audience so you know hnis big corporates big government um and nobody is really sort of really focused on a retail product so for us we really wanted to offer a super premium product, um, you know, that would work for and would be suitable for anybody, but we made it for the masses. Um, we removed the pricing. Price, you know, banking is generally expensive, but in a region where the level of affluence is not as high, it's even more expensive because it's it's relative, um, you know. So we removed the, the cost, really lowered the price. We made it accessible. Um, so it's really easy. Um, and it's just the simple things, you know, being transparent, empathetic, um, and, and just in, even in the language, you know, um, making it super simple for people to understand. Um, you know, these, these are the kind of things that breeds trust. So you have this product that is easy to use. It's transparent. They talk to you like, you know, we talk to, to customers like, you know, they're our friends and it doesn't cost you anything. So it makes the proposition of having an account and running an account more interesting. I mean, and I think that's the main reason why um, it's just been an interesting um, product for people to to adopt in, in the region. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the the growth, I guess, of uh, of investment into Africa. Um, a couple of examples, and, we, and we've covered them on the show before. Uh, I think the Flutterwave uh, funding round, which was I think about 170 million or so, um, that was uh, not so long ago. You've got um, Paystack, which was acquired by Stripe for over 200 million. Um, which is, you know, was a phenomenal deal when it happened. Uh, Interswitch, which is another payment. So a lot of these are sort of the infrastructure companies, which is incredible, obviously, because, and, and you know, the growth in the continent obviously starts from that. Um, I guess, from your perspective, are you seeing uh, more interest, uh, I suppose, in, in well, obviously, you know, you've, you, you've, you've got uh, VCs coming over from the US, et cetera, to invest into Africa. Have you seen uh, like a noticeable spike and a continued spike in interest from VCs and investment coming into the continent uh, sort of over the last, I guess, six months, 12 months, through COVID maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the more something is successful, the more it attracts um, others to come. Uh, so, you know, Africa, I think, has always been there. It's always been some a region where in, investors want to 
want to invest in, but you know, might not have had the conviction in, in prior years. But now I think there's a lot more confidence in, in founders, in African founders. There's a lot more the bridge, you know, the gap between sort of not understanding the dynamics of Africa um, has been sort of bridged to an extent. Um, so we now have founders that can, you know, close that gap and, and understand sort of the risk profiles and, and risk appetites of, of investors typically and demonstrate to them how sort of that those risks can be mitigated. Um, and, and once that is done and we've seen some successes, we're going to see more and more. Um, so I think Paystack was great. You know, it's an exit. Uh, so it does show that, you know, you can invest in Africa and you, you can do well. It can be a really great outcome. Um, Flutterwave has been great. And for us, you know, so people like myself, you know, I feel very responsible um, to really do well because, you know, the better that, you know, we do, the, the more um, resources and the more capital is going to come for others because they're like super talented individuals doing like amazing things, but they just haven't had the opportunity that some of us have had. Um, but if we do well, then that opportunity will come. So it's, it's, it's kind of like added responsibility um, for, for, for those of us that have sort of kind of broken through. Yeah, I understand that. I appreciate that. Um, Charles, I guess from your perspective, looking on as a, uh, as, as, as a provider, obviously of financial, uh, so is, is this a, um, is this a market that you guys have looked at, talked through, thought about, or is, you know, I, I suppose from, um, a scale perspective, you know, the more inf uh, infrastructure investment that is made in the continent, I suppose the, um, the, the more potential and ease it is to, to enter the continent. I mean, for, from your perspective, how, how does, how does this sit with you? I think it's, uh, first of all, congratulations, Babs, in relation to those stats. Um, I, the, the exponential growth, anyone as a founder, and, and when we set up ClearBank and, and the rest, uh, to see that level of growth uh, and take up, uh, congratulations in relation to that. I had a question later for you in relation to how you're handling actually the scaling, because we've seen with a lot of clients, um, when you get to 200,000 or you get to half a million, there's step functions there where they've outgrown their tech too quickly uh, and then are finding it difficult to scale. But coming back, Adam, sorry to your, your question, um, absolutely, uh, our ambition uh, very much in relation to looking at Europe and also the US in relation to that, but the whole African continent, you know, has had, as Bab says, you know, it's, it's risk averse in relation to investment although China and a number of others infrastructure-wise have invested heavily in it instead of Africa, obviously the US and Europe uh, has been more reserved in relation to it. I think that's opening up now. Um, and I think there's a tremendous amount of sort of opportunity. Obviously, COVID has, has played with that, but but so delayed that. Uh, but I think digital uh, full stop COVID has shown, whether you look at cash or checks or whatever, the demise of all of that and going on to card or payment rails it's no looking back in relation to that. And it's tremendous to see what uh, uh, Babs is doing. So it's not high on our list, but it's very much uh, up on the uh, uh, four, five, six list as we go global in relation to the opportunity there. Yeah. And I think it's it's easy to see why. And if you look at, I guess, the, the, the market potential, just some high level, yes, high level numbers, some 70% of Nigerians are under the age of 30. Um, and you know, entrepreneurial, um, and obviously mobile first in some, in, in most instances as well. So I guess, um, I remember Sequoia, uh, I've read, listened to a podcast in terms of their investment thesis, and they look for these growth markets, which have got sort of uh, a number of factors uh, attributed to it. And this is really the key one, which is, you know, how digitally savvy is the, uh, is the population and how, you know, how old are the population? Um, and I guess, uh, Babs, from, from your perspective, you know, hearing those numbers, if you're looking at, uh, SMBs um, moving potentially from consumer to, to business. I mean, it, there's so many areas to go. What 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 would be? I know geographically you could move into the UK, but is there any other areas to go in terms of moving from consumer to, to business and and beyond? Absolutely, um, we're actually you know setting up business accounts um, as we speak. The beautiful thing about a country like Nigeria is you have people that. Essentially, everybody has a side hustle. So you're, you have your normal sort of nine to five and 
just because, you know, salaries are not as high. So there's always a need to do something extra on the side. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that. Um, and we know that their businesses just because of the sort of type of transactions and the, um, infrequency and, and, and uncertainty of, of, of sort of inflows and outflows. So what we've done is we've taken advantage of that knowledge and actually, um, started building out a separate, uh, business bank account for those guys. Um, and then also just educating them on the benefits of re actually registering a company or the minimum, just registering a business name, because you get a lot of, um, I mean, I would say there's probably about 19 million sort of small businesses, um, but there are only about 3 million actually registered businesses. So you have the, the people, the, the girls selling cupcakes, someone selling, you know, t-shirts and the boot of the car and, you know, and those are all businesses. Um, and it, the more we understand them, the more we can actually just help them grow, especially when we start issuing credit, um, which I think is very different from retail credit. Retail credit just pretty much helps you bridge, you know, a certain emergency. Um, but, you know, business credit actually expands wealth and there's, and, and kind of justifies uh, your customers coming back for more money. And, you know, and, and the alignment is great because, you know, we get to give out more credit and make more money and they get to, you know, expand their businesses and, and grow and, and become more sort of profitable and, and, and whatnot. So there's a real focus for us on that side as well. Um, and yeah, it's definitely a product that that, that is coming on stream for, for, for Kuda. Cool. Um, awesome. We're going to move on to the, uh, we're going to move on to the next story, but just before we do, we'll take a quick pause and we can hear from our ad sponsor. So we'll be back after this. 11FS is supported by Banking Circle. Connect to the fastest, most cost-efficient and transparent payment solution available in the market. Cool. And on with the show. Uh, and the next story is that Oak North, uh, their profits have surged to 77.6 million uh, despite the pandemic. Uh, so this is uh, famed to be the uh, the profitable fintech um, Oak North, which has uh, boosted its profits by almost a fifth last year. Uh, operating income's grown uh, by 34% to 140 million. Customer deposits has increased uh, to 2.31 billion from just under 2 billion a year earlier. And Oak North uh, has also issued 1.1 billions worth of loans throughout the pandemic, including some facilities which have been linked to the uh, the government's business interruption loan schemes and, and the initiatives that the government's been put in place. Uh, the company's uh, loaned more than five billion since it was founded almost five years ago, uh, which is awesome. And they actually have said that their loans are directly helping with the creation of over 22,500 new jobs and more than 17,000 new homes, which uh, the significant majority of which are affordable and social housing, which is amazing. To find out more on this, we spoke to Val, uh, Valentina Christensen, who's a, a great friend of the show and Director of Marketing and Comms at Oak North. Uh, let's hear for what she had to say. Really exciting to be sharing our 2020 results and very nice to be sharing some positive news amidst all the, the doom and gloom from the last 12 months. The results show that we lent over a billion pounds to the missing middle uh, last year, the missing middle being those businesses that are the most significant contributors to economic and employment growth and uh, that we saw pre-tax profits increase to 78 million. Obviously, a portion of our lending was through the Coronavirus Business Interruption Loan Scheme and the Coronavirus Large Business Interruption Loan Scheme. But what's really interesting is that Oak North Bank launched in September 2015, and I remember watching an interview with Rishi, our co-founder and CEO, a month later, uh, where he said, we hope to lend a billion over the next few years. So to have got to... Uh, the next few years and have lent over 5 billion um, is really, really exciting. And I think a testament to, um, you know, just how big the gap is uh, in the market. Um, obviously, we, we will absolutely continue to uh, to empower the missing middle and to lend to the missing middle uh, over the, the rest of the year and beyond. Um, these businesses are going to play a vital role in the post-pandemic economic recovery. Um, and if you think about the 5 billion we've lent to date, it's directly contributed to the creation of tens of thousands of new homes and jobs across the UK. So obviously we want to continue uh, multiplying that multiplier effect um, throughout 2021 and beyond. But um, we're really, really grateful to all of our customers, all of our investors, the regulators, and of course our team um, who've helped us uh, get this far and 
uh, and help these, this many businesses. It's been a really exciting uh, journey to date. But as Rishi said, uh, season one was build and season two is scale. Um, so that's what we'll be focusing on for the next five years. Cool. Uh, Sarah, I'll come to you now. Um, your thoughts on this? I mean, it's amazing to achieve profitability during the last 12 months as it is. And we're seeing more and more fintechs popping up saying they've had uh, good years, especially those who've got um, association with credit. I just w- wondered what your your take was. I mean, my first thought is immediately that if you were able to get yourself up and running to doing C-bills or bounce back loans, you've done very well this year, essentially, in, in the neobanking space. Um, those, those loan programs have done very, very well. We saw Atom Bank come out with its results and say that it tripled business loans over the last 12 months, and, and it largely put that down to being part of that government scheme. So that's been, that's been a huge boon to these fintechs. Um, I think for Oak North, you know, I, I'm not sure I, I, I like missing middle as much as, you know, it's the same as we, we had a few years back in the UK, the squeezed middle. Um, but I do think that Oak North is onto something because it's gone after the M in SME. And not many other people serve that market. And if they do, they don't serve it well. So I think Oak North has managed to do that very, very clever thing of finding a niche, serving it really well and, and growing that business. And then once it's done that and got established, it's white labeled its underwriting platform, of course, which is a really clever way of bringing in more revenue without having to expand. So that underwriting platform is being used by banks around the world, but Oak North doesn't have to have a presence there, uh, you know, a, a public-facing presence. So I think I think Oak North, there's a few different strings to its bow, but I think I'm not surprised to see that it's managed to do well in the last year, despite the fact that it had some negative press, which I thought was a little unfair um, quite, uh, quite early on uh, within the pandemic. But yeah, I'm impressed and I would expect nothing less from them really. Yeah, I guess if, if you're going to look to white label your platform and sell it, one thing you probably need is a lot of transparency. And, and they are transparent in terms of their default rates and their write-off. I mean, they haven't had one write-off yet, which is amazing. And their default rates are very low. They've only had about 10 uh, across the last five years, which is incredible. Uh, Charles, just how difficult is that to do to sort of sustain that sort of level of, of underwriting, sort of high-class quality underwriting, um, especially given what's happened over the last sort of couple of years? It really is an achievement. And uh, I've been in investment banking for 35 years uh, and looking at corporate loan books. And actually, um, it was interesting to see actually with with, uh, NatWest closing down Ulster Bank uh, that I looked after uh, through the crisis in relation to the two years. And we wrote off, uh, unfortunately, 10 billion of debt as part of the, uh, the overall nearly 50 billion RBS bailout. So, um, in relation to what Rishi has done, I've been a big fan in relation to, to Oak North of, of particularly their credit AI uh, and forward-looking rather than the classic in terms of corporate bankers uh, looking backwards in historic information. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, 10 defaults there and six of those they've had 100% recovery on. Um, uh, Rishi used to talk about, you know, under our software, we're not going to have a single uh, loss, as you mentioned, sort of, Adam. Uh, well, he certainly had a test in relation, obviously, and I think will over the next couple of years uh, as the debt unwinds in relation to the M of SME, as Sarah says. But I, I, you can also see it in that a lot of this debt has been put on very fast. Um, and Sarah mentioned others. Starling is another good example to me. Uh, tremendous growth in, in lending in relation to C-bills and, and, and the rest. My concern is the unwind of that in terms of the recession. Uh, and there's a lot of talk in relation to SMEs now being saddled with debt they can't afford to repay, and also that the interest rates will starve them of growth capital coming out the other side. Uh, so I think there's still a lot to be done. I don't think the story is is over the other side, certainly, and how the, the shape of the recovery that we come out of. Um, but certainly getting a billion away in relation to uh, and the pandemic and getting to five billion, I think, is a tremendous achievement. Normally, it comes, as we all know, with significant credit losses the other side if you put it on too fast. That's going to be the, uh, the skill in relation to it's easy to lend it. It's much harder to get it paid back. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but- Babs, one of the things they've said is 
Um, and one of the, the, the beliefs on the market, I guess, is that their, their sort of secret source, I guess, at Oak North is that they can combine uh, a digital process, I guess, with uh, what they call human consultation, but um, the, the right blend of sort of uh, human and, and digital working together. Um, and I guess, is, is that something, you know, as you're building your processes, is that something that you, you look at as well? And, and do you think that that is, you know, instead of going fully automated and obviously fully manual, that there's a there's a blend in the middle, which, which gives you that richness that gives you that success yeah i mean i think that's really kind of the holy grail um and it's probably easier to do with medium-sized type companies than to do with a sort of b2c you know um consumer i mean how, how many consumers would you if you want to scale quickly could you really have a human you know sort of assessment of um but i think in the sort of uh b2 smb market um it's something that I think that's the perfect combination. Um, you know, you get to understand um, the business a little bit. You use the data you have. And, and, and banking is generally a relationship thing. So if you have the opportunity to sort of build that relationship outside of just data, um, then I think you'll do really well, especially with credit. Um, if we can do the same for, for the B2C, um, you know, if you're giving out, you know, you know, like loans to a million people and, and be able to build a human relationship as a, that, that would be truly you've done, amazing. You've scaled incredibly well, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, let's, uh, we'll, we'll move on to the next story, but uh, a shout out and a congratulations uh, to Oak North for that set of, uh, that set of results. Um, let's move on to the next one, which is uh, that free trade has raised 50 million. Uh, that's pounds in the UK. This came out uh, this week. So Free Trade said it's raised $50 million, $69 million in a Series B, uh, an oversubscribed funding round. It says the funds will accelerate its growth in international markets, uh, expand its team, its scale, uh, its products and its technology. So just about the uh, the, the full suite. Uh, it has more than 600,000 registered users and that its Q1 2021 trade volumes exceeded $1 billion. I must say I've never worked in an investment app before, so I'm assuming that's very good. Uh, but I'm going to put that down assumptions. Everyone's nodding on the call, so yeah, we'll we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, Free Trade said their goal is to help customers achieve better financial outcomes at low cost and educate new and experienced investors in developing long-term investing habits. And we'll come on to that because that's uh, coming into focus more and more in the media at the moment. Uh, Free Trade founder and CEO Adam Dobbs said this is a transformational investment that will supercharge our mission to get everyone investing. It's painful to see millions of investors across Europe stuck paying high fees and bogged down by complex terms and conditions. Um, wow. Uh, I mean, I, I'm on free trade, so, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I don't want to let my bias come into this story at all. Sarah, it looks like you're about to go. So, uh, yeah, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, um, I wouldn't have expected anything less from, from free trade to raise money at this point if you look at what we've seen in the self-directed investment market over the last 12 months. I mean, there's been a huge uptick in self-directed investment um, across an awful lot of economies. And we also had the news this week that Robinhood is going to IPO. Um, in my mind, there's two sides to this. So one, yeah, it makes sense to go for it now. You are booming, you are growing. Investors like growth, they like that very much. So, you know, t take take the chance whilst you can. That said, Robinhood still hasn't appeased the SEC, right? Robinhood has still got other things going on with the SEC. And here in the UK, um, um, free trade hasn't isn't in anywhere near as, you know, there's no question of, of free trade being spoken to by any regulators. But what the regulator has come out with this week is some research it conducted on self-directed investors. And it's really quite terrifying. So they, they surveyed self-directed investors, um, particularly those who... Uh, go towards higher risk investments, that's their preference. Only 41% of those investors think losing money is a real risk. They don't, the rest of them don't think that they could lose money investing, doing self-directed mm. investing. Um, you know, there's also found that emotional motivations are, are, are trumping functional ones. So people are going, I like the thrill. Um, I like the social status of owning Nike stock or Tesla stock or, you know, whatever it is. They're not saying, I want to make my money work for me. Um, which is which is you know what we all know and think investing should be doing if you're doing it for the long term. So I think um, just you know in short, these platforms have had a good year. 
they're capitalizing on it, but I think they have to be aware of what might be coming down the line. And at the same time, as free traders said they will, use the investment to bolster their platforms and make sure they're looking after their investors as much as they possibly can. I mean, they can't do everything. Um, they can't you know, change everybody's minds and everybody's investment habits. But I think they have to be aware that a lot of their growth is off the back of new investors who aren't necessarily experienced, who don't necessarily know what they're doing. And they have to build that into their plan for what they're going to do next. Yeah, and it was evident during the uh, the GameStop start saga of uh, of January 2021, as it will go down in history, um, that, that obviously new investors influenced probably by social media and by forums and just by you know a variety of yeah a variety of different mechanisms uh, were, were jumping on the bandwagon and what is still remains actually to this day uh, an incredibly volatile uh, set of meme stocks. Um, Babs, I suppose from your perspective, like what's your take on this? Like it's a it's a very very um, I suppose, new phenomena in terms of the amount of millennial investors that there's been, and it's really raised itself uh, it's in terms of customer volumes over the last 12 months. Do, do you see, um, I suppose, free trade uh, c- continuing this growth, or, or can you see there being some form of, you know, regulatory, uh, uh, you know, regulatory pressure on them going forward? Um, I think the growth will continue, um, but I think, you know, a lot will be done um, by the organization to be sort of more, on side with regulation. Um, I think there's a real chance to also, you know, educate and work together um, with regulators. Um, but, you know, there is, there is, I agree that there's a lot to do um, with, I, I guess, being, being more transparent, um, being clearer on the fact that, you know, investing is a risk um, and, you know, you, you can lose money. But I don't think that will stop people from from trading. Um, I think there's a real buzz to trading. I think you know lockdowns help a lot. You're at home. You know you need you you know psychologically you need something to you know entertain you. And the possibility of making you know higher returns on 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 your money is is a is a buzz, especially sort of in the demographic, the age range of of those that are you know the younger the younger population. That are sort of you know um, inciting the growth, but I do think they'll they will keep growing absolutely. Um, I mean, I think they'll even grow faster than they, they are doing at the moment. Yeah, they, I'd say their experience, the UI is uh, is pretty incredible when you benchmark it against other um, other providers and platforms in the UK. And Charles, I guess I'll come to you. Just to, it is interesting because when you think of free trade, that the main competition actually probably sits outside of the UK. If you were, I know Robin Hood were going to come over, they didn't in the end. Um, it, that kind of new self directed, as, as Sarah called it, DIY investing apps. Do, do you think there's room for more than just free trade in the UK, um, or can you see, or do, do you believe? Because at the moment they've got you know, six hundred thousand customers. I'd love to know how many of those are active, and actually their definition of what active actually means. But it would be: Do you think there's room for more than one? Uh, you know, are we starting to see a flurry of, of these kind of companies? And actually, alongside that, the infrastructure players that support it. Can you see them growing? Uh, I definitely think there's room for more. But I'm I'm with Sarah on this in relation to regulation. Um, I, it only needs a, a very naive investor to have a large loss uh, and it's over all the press and the front pages and the FCA is going to have an issue. Um, uh, and so the, the and I think it will happen, unfortunately. So I, 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 I think there's nothing uh, in relation to uh, the, the competition needs to, to look at regulation and all of the, the warnings and T's and C's in relation to those in that a loss will come. A uh, good example to me the other day, we live out in the, the Surrey Hills. We have, we burn oil. The oil tanker driver uh, was delivering last week and he asked me, should I put £250 into Bitcoin? Um, uh, is that a good investment? And that to him, that was like betting his house. You know, that's telling me something exactly as, as, as Babs was saying. Lockdown and the various other people want a bit of a thrill um, and there's lots of opportunities rather than horse racing or gambling to actually uh, spend some of your money. We all know what happens with bubbles. And uh, if consumers lose money, then regulators and government get involved. So so I, it's, it's tremendous to watch, but I'm very wary in relation to regulation uh, and consumer protection. And, and as we know, FCI is about avoiding consumer harm. Uh, and they could well be in this space. 
Yeah, despite what you might read on on Twitter, it's unlikely the market will perform as well as it did last year, uh, this year. Um, That is for sure. Um, Thanks very much for that. Let's move on to the next story. Uh, Another raise, this time for Zopa. Uh, They've raised 20 million uh, after exceeding uh, their bank's performance targets. Uh, So Zopa, who were one of the sort of the older, I guess older, still not too old, uh, but the leading pioneers uh, in peer-to-peer payments, um, they picked up 250 million in deposits uh, following the launch of its app-only bank, which was last year. Um, they got a restricted banking license in December 18, uh, and then they've got a full banking license last June, uh, and that followed uh, a £140 million fundraise, which meant it could uh, meet its capital requirements uh, for what it wanted to do, which was uh, build a savings account. Uh, and at the moment, they launched, uh, well, they launched at the time, and you can still get their one to five year fixed term savings account. Um, and since then, the banking operations moved into credit cards, unsecured loans, auto finance, uh, and they've also lent five billion to customers, which is an, uh, um, which is an inc- also an incredible amount. Um, the firm said it's an annualized revenue per customer, almost doubling in the period since launch, which is incredible. Uh, we heard from uh, the Zopac. CEO, uh, Jadev Jardadan, to find out more. Only nine months since launch, Zopa Bank has made great strides. Across all metrics, number of customers, balance sheet growth, revenues, we are running ahead of the plan we had set for ourselves. We are now a top 10 credit card issuer. We have attracted more than 250 million in deposits from our customers. And new customer volumes and revenues already exceed pre-COVID levels. This has proven the organic appeal of our products at a time when customers are experiencing change and looking for better product options. The additional capital we received from our shareholders is a testament to our great performance and will allow Zopa to further accelerate growth and reach profitability by the end of 2021. Cool. Um, Sarah, again, I'll, I'll come to you for this one. Um, they've lent the same amount of Oak North, but Oak North are profitable. Why is this? What, what is, what's the differences between the two? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a bit unfair. Zopa's only been at it for nine months. I actually think Zopa's done really well. Um, they were in the peer-to-peer lending space, as you mentioned, and, and that didn't turn out brilliantly, not just for Zopa, but that, that whole market um, yes. really, really struggled. And I think they stopped, thought about it, and had a clear, considered plan about what to do next. And that did involve some changes of leadership, but it seems to be working for them. Um, I think, you know, I think they're being slow and steady, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That said, I am impressed by how many products they've managed to bring to market. And in particular, the credit card uh, piece is really interesting, because what we're missing here in the UK, I think, um, is really good challenges on the credit card side. Like We have very good uh, current account um, you know, competitors. We actually have quite good sort of on the SME side, we have quite good competitors there in the fintech space, but it's been very hard to, 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 for a fintech to successfully launch a competitive credit card that's gone down well with customers. Tandem had a go at it. It didn't work for them. They couldn't make the, the business model work. Um, so, so I am generally impressed with Zopa. I think they're doing really well, and I don't think there's anything wrong with taking a bit of time about it and doing what you're doing right, particularly in the current market. Yeah, Jado said they're a, a top 10 credit card issuer. Um, does does anyone or can, does anyone know what that that means exactly? Does that mean number of cards or NPS rating, uh, some other metric? I mean, how would you? I suppose if someone said that to you, where would your mind immediately go? I would think number of cards, um, but I don't know. I, I agree, Sarah. I would too as well. And there would be number of cards, number of us, users that are taking the card. Probably because if they've only launched it nine months ago, they're going to have a huge uptick because they're new on the market. And so, you know, they're an alternative for people who've been looking at the same old credit card deals for years after years, possibly. But that's that's a, a, an assumption. It is. Um, Zopa is a, an incredible story of, a, um, of I guess, the... Uh, the methodology that you'd love to see fintechs take, which is you start small and niche in one particular segment, and then you grow your ecosystem from there. I remember speaking to them before they were a bank, and they were about to join this journey of of trying to get re- a regulatory license. And I think it was always their intention to do so. Um, but it's been in a it's obviously been a long journey. But how important, I guess, is it to sort of get that niche immediately? I mean, if you look at the the big US fintechs, you know, the Squares and the Stripes, etc., they always started with something. Quite quite niche and then they 
you know, ballooned out from there into other ecosystems. And this is sort of a smaller version of that, but still quite poignant. Um, how important is it almost to nail your first niche and your first product and then grow out from there rather than try and attempt everything at once? Yeah, so I think it's really important to build credibility, um, especially with, you know, financial products and to build expertise as well. Um, you know, so focusing on a particular niche and doing it really, really well, um, I believe allows customers to build that sort of to gain that trust. And then you can expand and, and, and do all the other things. And you just generally have a better understanding of customer behavior um, because you're seeing, you know, their actions and you can build towards that. Uh, so it makes complete sense. Um, you know, I think uh, the Zopa model, um, what they're doing now, I think it's pretty amazing. Um, it's, it's a difficult market to be in just because, I mean, in the emerging market, we have, you know, uh, a wider margin in terms of, you know, what you can make in, in, in interest and interest income. Um, there's a there's a higher tolerance level for, for losses just because the interest rates are just so much higher. So for them to be doing what they're doing in, in, in the sort of uh, UK market, I think is pretty special. Um, again, just in, in, within 12 months, I think it's, yeah, it's pretty big, pretty good going. Yeah, it's pretty incredible stuff. Uh, and congratulations to the team at Zopa. Um, let's move on now uh, to the stories we didn't have time to cover. Um, there's three of these at the moment. Um, these stories, we believe, still deserve a shout out. Uh, Sarah, do you want to take the first one? Sure, absolutely. I know why they've given me this one. Um, so Airwallex raises valuation to $2.6 billion on a $100 million Series D extension. So the Australian fintech payment platform Airwallex has increased its valuation. Um, that extension lifts Airwallex's Series D overall funding to $300 million. Uh, Jack Zhang, I think it's Zhang, co-founder and CEO of Airwallex, says the latest infusion of capital will be used to fuel the company's global expansion, explore new partnerships, and continue with product and engineering innovation. In 2020, Airwallex introduced multi-currency debit cards with Visa, a bank feed integration with Zero, an SMB rewards program, and an online payment acceptance capabilities. So Airwallex was pretty busy last year. Um, I, I love this. It's an Australian success story. You know, there's a lot of fintech happening down there, but we, we don't see a huge amount reach scale. Um, I think Airwallex has done really, really well. Um, I think they're eyeing up, you know, the Asian market, which makes perfect sense, given where they're based in Australia. Australia isn't that bigger market to target. Um, so it makes sense to look internationally. Um, I'm, I'm impressed. I like it. You know how I feel about Australian fintech. I'm, I'm all guns blazing and I'm, I'm very pleased with them. Cool. Uh, let's go on to the next one, which is Minister's Scrap Digital ID Project after spending eight years and almost 200 million of taxpayers' money. Uh, an identity verification program that once promised to change the way citizens access government services has been scrapped after eight years of work and a spend of almost 200 million of taxpayers' money. Uh, the scheme gov.uk verify was introduced in 2013 uh, as a way for the public to prove their identity when using online services have they not heard of auth zero i don't um ministers have planned for 25 million people uh to use verify by 2020 uh with all government departments using the system but the scheme has now been scrapped after several government departments refused to use it that's not great um ministers promised the best elements of verify will be reused where appropriate in a new version of the same idea of course, if it hasn't worked once, try it again. Um, the, the new digital identity scheme will use decentralized technology, obviously, let's make it more complex, uh, to avoid the need for one government database of citizens' data. I mean, it's like a catalogue of errors, really, in, 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 in five bullet points. Um, yeah, I mean, look, this is a, a, an, another example over the year of, uh, of the government spending a lot of money for something which doesn't work. Um, I, I, must, I must say, over a seven-year period, the fact that at the end, several government departments refuse to use it does scream who the hell were they testing it with in the first place like surely their their key users would have you know sort of advocated and iterated with them but clearly not uh, that's a spend of nearly 25 million a year uh, which is an extraordinary amount of money for an identification service um yeah not great but then the story itself will probably be buried in sort of the world of covid anyway so they might actually get away with it from a negative press perspective but anyway let's move on sarah do you want to give us the last one 
I'm just going to have one word for that last story is bonkers. Um, <laughs> the final the final one here is Revolut submits draft application for U.S. bank charter. So uh, Revolut said it completed the first step to apply for a U.S. banking license and is launching its services for businesses across 50 states simultaneously. Uh, Revolut first opened in the U.S. earlier last year in partnership with a local bank. The company said a license would allow it to offer more services to U.S. customers, such as overdraft protection, loans, and deposit accounts. It is now launching its services for small and medium-sized businesses across the states. Um, the CEO said it's a more pandemic-resilient offering. Um, I mean, basically, right, in o- October 2020, they said, we're going to apply for a US banking license in a few weeks, and we get to March, and they've just got to stage one. So that was that was a little bit premature. Also, Revolut is trying to apply for a UK banking license at the same time. Now, that thing we were talking about earlier on about resources and dedicating your resources, I feel like this is very, very ambitious. Getting a license in neither country is easy. It is hard. It takes time. It takes resources. It takes people. Um, So I wonder if maybe Revolut should be focusing on one rather than the other. Um, You know, I, I think going back to the points we made earlier as well, find one thing you do well, do it well, and then build on that. And, you know, maybe if once you've gone through one licensing process, you'll have a lot to learn that you can apply to the second licensing process rather than trying to do two simultaneously. I know they're different licensing bodies, but um, it feels very ambitious, possibly dangerous to me. Yeah, we're doing it at the moment. It is not easy. Um, And finally, uh, for something completely different, Monty Python gets in on NFTs. Um, So this was that Monty Python's John Cleese is now selling a drawing of the Brooklyn Bridge made on an iPad Pro. Uh, it's listed on OpenSea, and the auction ends in ten days. Uh, so, if, uh, sold by his alter ego, the unnamed artist John Cleese. Bidding started at hundred quid. Uh, it's now made its way up to sorry, hundred dollars. That is, but it's made its way up to not that it matters too much because it's made its way up to nearly thirty six thousand uh, dollars. Cleese says he wants sixty nine point three million for the piece, suggesting the illustration won't sell unless someone bids at least that much. There is a, a picture in the show notes of it. It's very good. Uh, there's some fish and everything swimming in in in, in the uh, in the Hudson. Um, I, I suppose a, a question for the audience: uh, um, NFTs, are you in or are you out? <laughs> I'm out. I, I have, I'm out. I have nothing to add to this at all. <laughs> I'm, I am, out. I'm out. We, we've got two outs. I think Babs is frozen, so he's completely out. <laughs> <laughs> all right, just wrap, Adam. Just wrap the show. <laughs> <laughs> just the, the sheer thought of it. I, I actually, I, I did want to make a point about NFTs and um, and the, the, the copyright around it because I think it is in, in, because John. Uh, um, Jack Dorsey just sold his first ever tweet, uh, the, the Twitter tweet. For, I think it was $2.9 million or something it went for. Um, and all the recipient got for that was the underlying source code. They got a digital certificate and that was about it. And I'm thinking, what happens if, and I know there's there's lots of talk about copyright and how you copyright certain bits of NFTs, whatever else. But, you know, in the same way that you've got an artist, like a, a an artist um reviewer who goes in and, and, and values, you know, va- values pieces of art, who can strip back the art and see, you know, what happened 30, 50, 100 years ago. Um, are you going to have somebody who's going to go in and review the code? <laughs> is, is that how you're going to determine whether what you're seeing on your screen is right? <laughs> this guy wrote in React Native, that means it's definitely 2020. <laughs> I think that's another Sarah's, Sarah Bonkers uh, required there as well. Uh, absolutely, it is. Uh, it is definitely interesting. The um, yeah, the NFT craze, probably fueled potentially by Bitcoin money, is is definitely taking off. Um, anyway, let's move on and let's move out. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all our guests. Where can people find out more about yourself, Charles? Charles McManus at Clear Bank, uh, or, or get hold of me anywhere. Any all things Clear Bank, uh, I'll be there. So delighted to uh, take part. Thanks for a good show. No, a pleasure. It was great to have you. Uh, Sarah, uh, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kajansky. Cool. Uh, Babs, where, where can we find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram at Babs Ogundi. Cool. Awesome. Uh, and as for me, you can find me at Adam D8 on Twitter or at 11FS.com. Uh, thank you uh, for listening. Thank you so much. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better uh, and helps others to find the show. And as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Uh, thank you very much and goodbye for this week. Bye.